section of the northern kingdom at the time when the wall was rebuilt. It was during the reign of Ahab. And what's concerning is the account of Ahab's reign recorded in 1 Kings 16, verse 30, which we read. There the word of God says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He was more wicked than all the kings of Israel that had preceded him. Not only did he follow in the footsteps of Jeroboam, who caused Israel to sin by worshipping the golden calves that were set up in Bethel and Dan, he went one step further. He embraced Baal worship, over and against the worship of the one true God of heaven. You see, beloved, his predecessors, Jeroboam, had set up idols, golden calves, to prevent the people from going down to Jerusalem to worship the Lord in the temple. He didn't want the northern tribes going into Judah where their loyalty might be diverted away from the northern kingdom back to the house of David that was ruling in Judah. But it wasn't as if those golden calves didn't still represent the God of heaven. Those calves, although contrary to the word of God, who had commanded the people not to make such graven images, were still intended to direct the people's worship towards Yahweh the God who had delivered them from slavery and who had brought them into the promised land. If you want to make a modern-day comparison, one might think about the practice of worshiping God through the prayers of the saints or through Mary. The intention and the desire of those making such prayers, even though misplaced, is still to worship the one true God in heaven. The problem, of course, is that such worship is contrary to the way in which the Lord has commanded us to worship Him. But I think we can all recognize that there is a difference between what's happening in the Church of Rome and what's currently taking place in much of the Western world, where many have turned their backs completely on God, who even deny his existence and do everything in their power to tear the church down. And that's essentially the same difference between what Ahab was doing and those who went before him. He was not just worshiping God in a tainted fashion. No, the tainted worship of Israel had given way to full-blown apostasy. He had made a conscious decision that he did not need God at all. And neither did the nation of Israel. This decision comes out loud and clear by his choice in marriage. Jezebel, the daughter of the pagan king of the Sidonians, 
was an ardent worshiper of Baal. And our text says that Ahab was more than willing to change religions for his new wife. He's not rooted and grounded in the worship of the one true God. We read that he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who went before him. Beloved, that decision might not resonate with us in our own age. But before we draw that conclusion, we need to look a little closer at what Baal worship was all about. Baal and Asherah were all about prosperity in an agricultural society. The focus of that religion was on fertility. Fertile animals and fertile crops would lead to wealth. And so what we're dealing with is essentially a religion focused on sex and wealth. And perhaps that brings it into perspective for us. How many have abandoned the faith to pursue the gods of this world? Sex and wealth. And in the process, they have completely abandoned the church of Jesus Christ. Even gone so far as to oppose it. And all of this, brothers and sisters, was revealed immediately before the events that take place in verse 34, which tells us that in his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. And so our text is causally linking the deplorable rule of Ahab to the reconstruction of Jericho by Hiel. And that's really not that surprising. All the kings who had preceded Ahab still had some respect for the God who had delivered them out of Egypt and who had brought them into the land of Canaan. And they were wary of the curse that Joshua had pronounced upon the one who would rebuild the city or the wall to be exact. And we know from several passages of Scripture that the city of Jericho was not actually completely abandoned and left there to deteriorate. In fact, already in the days of the judges, people had moved back into Jericho and settled there as recorded in Judges 3 verse 13. There, Scripture records that the Ammonites and the Amalekites attacked and took possession of the city of Palms, as Jericho was then known. What was never rebuilt, however, was the wall. In Ahab's day, it still remained in ruins. And from a strategic standpoint, that was completely unacceptable. Jericho lay on the eastern side of the nation where just west of the Jordan River. Several important roads ran past the city from north to south and from east to west. And to enter the land from the east meant traveling directly past this important city. 
which guarded the road leading to Samaria and also to Jerusalem. And for someone who had abandoned God, who was rooted in unbelief, who likely believed the curse was nothing more than folklore to leave this city unfortified, seemed like utter folly. In fact, for someone bent on prosperity, it made no sense at all. Because it threatened their prosperity. Because an invader could enter the land from the east virtually on a post. As long as that wall around Jericho lay in ruins. And so we should not conclude that Hiel took the initiative to rebuild Jericho's wall all on his own. It was unlikely that such a project could have been initiated without the blessing of the king. And so Hiel was likely commissioned and given the contract, so to speak, to get the job done. And to his detriment, he incurred the curse that Joshua had proclaimed nearly 500 years before. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segup, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, we don't know how many sons Hiel had, but the wording of this text in the original language leads us to conclude that all of Hiel's sons died. The curse began with the death of his oldest son when the foundation was laid and ended with the death of his last son when the gate was erected. If he did have other sons, it's implied that they too died during the building of the wall. So that he was left without an heir. The net result of this curse was that he was left without sons. And as a result, his name would be cut off from his inheritance. Lost. The covenant regulations had the land, the family inheritance of the father, passed down to the sons. But with no son, the land would be transferred to a close relative. Hiel's inheritance would be lost and taken away, a sign that he would be excluded from the covenant and all its promises. So, brothers and sisters, what do we take away from this depressing scene? Well, we need to understand that back in the day of Joshua, the Lord had fought to secure the people's inheritance in the land. He had said to Joshua that he would fight on behalf of the people and that he would give them the land. And so the ruined wall stood as a constant reminder of what God had done to secure their place in that land. But it pointed to more than that. It also pointed to what God was still going to do. Because Canaan was a symbol of heaven. God was symbolically saying to the people, there is a greater inheritance yet to come. I have a plan to bring you into your heavenly inheritance. 
Look at the wall in ruins. The forces of evil that stand in the way and try to prevent your entrance into the promised land. That attempt to rob you of your heavenly inheritance. They will be thrown down. Never to rise again. And indeed, beloved, our God is a God who fulfills his promises. The sin that prevented our entrance into heaven, the dividing wall of hostility between man and God has been destroyed with the victory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ upon the cross. He paved the way into heaven itself. Just like God brought the Israelites in to the promised land. And there all who believe have a place prepared for them. And we dare not spurn such a wonderful promise and inheritance. We need that constant reminder and assurance of God's loving covenant promises. That he has a plan to bring us into our inheritance What Hiel did by rebuilding the wall was like saying he did not need God to bring him in. It's as if he said, I will secure my own inheritance. I will go along with Ahab and turn to Baal, to the gods of sex and money, and there is where I will find my treasure. All on my own. And that's the direction that many in our world go. They've spurned the deliverance that Christ has won upon the cross. And they care little for the heavenly inheritance that he secured on their behalf. And the sad reality is that they will incur the same fate as Hiel. They will have no place in the heavenly inheritance to come. Beloved, but how did it come to this? Especially amid God's people. Well, that brings us to our second point. The curse of Hiel, the symbol of God's judgment upon an apostate people who abandoned their faith. 